Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Andy J Podcast. Now this one is a little bit different. If you're a regular listener, you will know we usually speak to between three and four big star celebrities every week and we like to give you extended versions of the conversations that we have on the radio show. Now this week is different because we haven't got three or four guests. We've got just one. One really special superstar guest, and I'm absolutely delighted to say that not only was he happy to chat for a little bit, he was happy to chat for a lot. In fact, there were no limitations to this conversation, and it was a conversation that was really interesting because initially we started off talking where he was in his car, in his uh, garage or bunker or whatever it was, one of his cars, because he thought that would give him the best acoustics, and that car was a Tesla. And then it wasn't close enough to his router because we were doing this through FaceTime. So it kept distorting. So in the end, we had to restart the conversation with him back at his house on his landline. And the whole time, he was great company, great value and so accommodating. He is, of course, you know this from the blurb, the incredible James May, star of Top Gear and the Grand Tour and our man in Japan, etc. I mean, he's a huge star. And this conversation, when it went out, was so much fun. Not only was it great fun to do, and he was incredible company, but also lots of newspapers picked up our chat. And things like, uh, I think one of the papers, we talk about whether he's a brother to Brian May. And one of the papers led with that, which was a lot of fun. Anyway... I think you will find James May incredible company. It was such a pleasure to chat to him. And he's been lovely since as well, sending nice messages about enjoying the conversation, etc. Speaking of conversations, we have a huge catalogue of celebrity conversations. James May is just one of many, 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 many stars that we've had the privilege of speaking to recently. So I hope you will have a little filter through our back catalogue of celebrity chat and choose to speak to and listen to other people. Obviously, I do the speaking, you do the listening. Thank you very much. We really do appreciate it. Like, subscribe, etc. You know the drill. It's a podcast. We live and die by people listening to us and telling their friends and sharing and, and all that stuff. But we have a huge catalogue, so I really hope you enjoy it. And I can also promise you that we have some massive names planned. I've been working on one in particular who's associated James May, who I think, hope we might be able to get towards the end of the year. So, fingers crossed. Do join us, be part of the fun. This is the Andy J Podcast with James May. The Andy J Podcast. Hey there, welcome to Driven here on Talk Radio. I'm Andy J. Now, those of you that listen regularly will know that if Driven is an engine, then... Well, this is the show that tries to get under the skin of celebrities, and so we try to be the mechanic that works out what makes the engine tick, if that makes sense. The celebrities, of course, being the engine, 
we being the mechanic. That's an absolutely dreadful link, but there's a reason for it, which will be revealed very shortly. Now, regular listeners will also know that we tend to talk to between three and five celebrities every show. However, today, well, things are a bit different. We have just one very special guest. He's a man who is part of probably the most famous trio on the planet. I'm thrilled to be able to welcome Mr. James May. James, how are you doing? Very well. How are you? And thank you for not saying in the world. Because that would have been depressing. <laughs> do you know, I actually made a mental note not to do that. First and foremost, James, this show is called Driven. Is that bringing back any memories for you? Oh, God, yes. Um, <laughs> oh, Driven. Yeah, that was the very first. Apart from an appearance on Breakfast TV back in the early 90s, Driven, the original Channel 4 series, was the, the first bit of proper TV I did with Mike Brewer and Jason Pollock, who used to call it, of course, Driven, because he's from Northern Ireland. <laughs> That's us, Driven. Um, it was always his job to introduce the show, yes. That is a long time ago, I'm afraid, it's... 1999. Yeah, the last century. It is the last century, yeah, the last millennium. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's quite mad when you think about it like that. James, what was it? I mean, listen, we've got so much to talk about, but let's go back to the beginning just because... You know, what was it back in 98, 99, when, when, you, when you first appeared on telly? What was it that made you want to do that? Because, of course, prior to that, you were a journalist and, and you had various other jobs. What was it that made you think, I'm going to be on telly now? Well, to be honest, it wasn't, it wasn't my idea. I was approached by a man called Ben, who became the producer, and he, had, well, he was a fan of things like car magazines and travel magazines, which I was writing for, and he'd read my stuff, and he quite liked it, and he said, would you like to have a crack at doing some telly? So I said, yeah, all right. And then I just did it. Um, nobody really told us how to do it, but I was working with Mike Brewer, who was very experienced yes. at TV, and I was with Jason Barlow, who I knew anyway. So we used to have a very nice time, actually. When we used to do our, our bit at the track um, over in Essex, I used to have to, what day did we do it? I think we did it on Wednesdays. No, or was it Mondays? This is very hazy because it's so long ago. It's a thousand years, remember? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I used to drive over there on Sunday night. We, we, we stayed in this in this pub, really, which was always deserted. I can't remember what it was called. We used to refer to it as the Hotel du Crap because it was a bit <laughs> terrible. And we'd stay there on Sunday evenings, I think it was, and we'd sit together and we'd write a script on my old laptop and come up with some feeble jokes and a running order. We fairly, I mean, we sort of made it up as we went along. I suppose the results were quite encouraging, really. The show was, was fairly popular. We didn't really know what we were doing, or uh, I didn't, and I don't think Jason Barlow did. And that gave it a sort of homespun charm, I suppose, which people quite liked. But inevitably, I was fired from that, like I have been from everything else in my life. So <laughs> I was only there for one season, and then I was gone. And then I was on to the original Top Gear at Pebble Mill. Yeah. Um, and, and I lasted on that for one season and then got fired as well. I'm just, I'm constantly waiting to be fired from everything I do. <laughs> that can't, I mean, that can't be a real fear anymore, surely. Uh, well, it is a bit. I mean, one of the results of the coronavirus is that quite a few bits of work I had planned, like, you know, another couple of travel shows following on from Our Man in Japan, the big specials for the Grand Tour, various other ideas I had. They've all been postponed, I mean, for the moment, indefinitely, because we can't travel, we can't do the sort of things we want to do 
with social distancing and quarantine rules in place. So I have this slight fear that I've actually retired and I just haven't realised it. (laughs) I may have been sort of fired by circumstance. I've been fired by the world. Well, I mean, James, let's be frank. If you've been fired, what what's, what does that say about the rest of us? I mean, you know, you're a man who can call up a broadcaster with a top-line idea and boom, it's done. You know, the rest of us, I mean, if you're not in work, we're all in trouble. Well, that's very generous of you, although you don't know about all the ideas that I've fired at broadcasters that have just been sent straight back to me with a big nose scribbled on them. There are more of those than ones that have got through. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, how does it feel though, James? Because, you know, the, the you that hosted Driven, that got fired from it, you know, last, last millennia and from the Pebble Mill version of Top Gear and so on and so forth. Would you have believed that, that 20 years later, you know, you did hold, and, and I know you've been very modest about it, but you do hold that, that sort of, I mean, you're, you're phenomenally well known and broadcasters, we all know this. They want a piece of it. Your name carries great weight. People will watch. James May presents. People will watch that. Whatever you're presenting, they'll come to it because you have a huge audience. It is um, it, it is rather humbling and it remains very surprising. I mean, when I did things like the reassembler, which is really me putting together an old telephone and explaining how it works, we, we filmed that. And then I was amazed when I saw they actually are going to put it on the television. I, I remember <laughs> doing a tweet saying, that, that God, someone's actually put it on the telly. Um, and it still comes as a bit of a surprise, but it's not, it's not something I really dwell on or think about too much, to be honest, because that way lies madness. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it, I guess it would drive you a bit crazy. I mean, what, what is it like? I know that's such a, a glib question, but it's, it's one that I'm genuinely intrigued by. You know, when, when you think about yourself when you're looking in the mirror and thinking well i'm i'm james may what does that what does that actually mean to you well to be honest the two things i avoid in life are mirrors <laughs> and thinking about myself <laughs> uh it's disturbing but um i don't I, I can honestly say i don't i don't really think about it i'm going to say it hasn't changed me which is i, I know what everybody says but i don't think it has i mean i still I still have the same sort of fairly shabby life. I've still got the same mates that I had all those years ago. It's, I, it's, it's, it's best not dwelt upon. And I can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about being James May. It's just the way I am. Well, you say, I mean, you say you haven't changed, but, but obviously you're, I mean, we all get older, so we change our bodies, change anyway. Things hurt. Oh, yeah, I've changed in that respect. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm definitely feeling much older. <laughs> but you've, you've, shall, I'll put this delicately, you've acquired more stuff. Uh, yes, I suppose I've acquired more stuff. <laughs> what do you mean exactly? Do you mean- well, I mean, as in the you that, that was 20 years ago, you know, did not have a, a, a garage full of supercars and, and couldn't, you know, just travel wherever he wanted to in presumably whatever class you feel like. You know, you, you have that now, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, to a certain extent, yes. But I, I, I like to try and remain grounded, keeping it real, bro, you know, in it. <laughs> I mean, so when you started out, James, you know, I'm assuming that you were, you were that guy to your friends who they would be the guy that you'd be the guy that they would call when they wanted some car advice. You know, it's like, oh, look, is this any good? Should I buy one of these? Do I need to avoid this? Has the degree of calibre of cars that they're calling you about changed accordingly? Uh, that's a very good question. I suppose, yeah, people did occasionally ask me about cars, and it, it, it's, always, it's always very difficult to answer people's questions, especially when they say, 
oh, I'm thinking of buying a, a BMW 4 Series diesel. Do you think I should? Now, the answer is yes, because that's what they want to buy, and they just want to hear you say that it's a good idea so they can feel better about it. There's no point saying, well, do you know what? I think I'd have the petrol, because actually I would have the petrol. But that, there's no point in picking an argument about it with somebody who has decided they want that thing. Unless they were going to, you know, buy something utterly ludicrous, and I really felt that I had a moral and social duty to warn them against it, I would tend to agree with them. It is, it is true that I suppose, you know, when people still ask me quite often about things like, you know, regular hatchbacks, sensible cars, but occasionally these days I will meet somebody who asks me about that new Ferrari I've just driven because they might be the sort of person who's thinking of buying one. Yeah. I didn't used to know anybody who bought Ferraris. So that's that's kind of changed a bit. I mean, look, I'll, I'll give you an example for me, James. Now, I am not the car journalist that you are. I'm not the car knowledge. I have a great passion for cars. I've done a fair amount with them over my career, but it, I'm I'm by no means an expert, and I've never uh, never pretended to be. Um, however, I get on the receiving end of things. And this morning, before our call, I randomly had Olympic hero Ewan Thomas. Are you aware of his work? Yes. Yeah. So you, absolute legend, um, phenomenal on the track. He phoned me this morning. He is just about to buy a hot rod and he's suddenly panicking because he realises it doesn't have windscreen wipers and it's not right-hand drive and he's not sure if it can be road legal and he wants to know whether I think he should spend the tens of thousands of pounds that he's bid on it. Now, I don't know what to say to that. What would you say? Well, I w- yeah, you see, that's a very good example. I would say, well, if you want to. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think, you know, you wouldn't... Um, you wouldn't allow someone else to decide for you which house you bought. That would be unfair on the other person, even if they happen to be an expert on houses. So I don't think you should feel responsible for what he does with his many thousands of pounds, you know, if he ends up spending it on a hot rod. He obviously really wants a hot rod. Yeah. See, I would suggest that he just wants someone to tell him it's okay. <laughs> but he wants to be able to so know he can drive he, it on the road. And that's what I can't he probably answer. Well, it depends exactly how, how hotted his rod is. But, yeah. um, <laughs> but, I mean, that's something he can work out for himself quite easily. I, I suspect you should you should ring him back and say, look, it, it is a stupid idea because owning a hot rod is you know not sensible in any way. But if that's what you want, if it's keeping you awake and it's been keeping you awake for a while, then... Off you go, mate. There you go. You see, now, James, I you've done my job for me. I don't need to call him back. I can send him that little clip of audio and say, there you go, from the horse's mouth. Yes. Yes, you and buy the hot rod. Do it now. Get it bought. <laughs> job done. That's perfect. James, I know we've got an awful lot to talk about, but it would be completely remiss of me, not early doors, to talk about the Top Gear. You know, Top Gear has been a huge part of your life. It is. It has dominated you know, over a decade of your career. I think you're on the show for 12, yeah, 12 well, years. Yeah, well, it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, how was it? How was it? Um, well, it was... <laughs> I mean, it started off quite quite sort of small, quite timidly, I suppose, and then yeah. it just kept growing and growing. I mean, I had no idea that would happen. I didn't know it would become the world's most watched factual programme or whatever accolade it is we've got. Um, I would have, I thought, you know, this might be a bit of a laugh, and I would have, well, maybe two or three years before we were replaced by someone else, or, you know, the idea became old and somebody came up with a new format. But look, here we are, still doing pretty much the same thing as Grand Tour, and now, how, it's what, 17 years, 18 years? 
nearly 18 years. That's staggering when I think about it because, I mean, in many ways, those 18 years have been filled with unimaginable adventure, things I never, ever thought I would do and, I, and that I wouldn't have done in any other, any other job I may have ended up in. But also at the same time, I have difficulty accounting for all those years because they were very busy. They were hectic. Uh, we were traveling around a lot. We were bashing our heads against subjects. We were arguing. And then the next thing I know, I'm actually quite an old man. And I don't understand how that happened. <laughs> but if I sit and write down you know, a list of all the places we've been and all the things we've done, then I think, well, actually, that, that's not a bad result for 18 years. It's phenomenal. Uh, Did you find yourself you know, late one night scrolling through the telly and, and an old episode comes on, do you find yourself watching yourself back and also going, oh, I'd forgotten we did that? Well, to be honest, I, I, don't, I don't really like watching myself on telly. It's a bit like, you know, when you, if you have, um, you know, a voicemail, especially if you've got an old-fashioned sort of answering machine at home on your landline, you, you, you listen to your outgoing message or you record your one. You're saying, hi, this is James. I'm sorry I'm not in. And when you listen, <laughs> you think, oh, that sound, I sound awful. Everybody thinks that. Everybody hates themselves on the answer phone message. That's what it's like watching yourself on TV. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it, it doesn't seem like you. Yes, you're, you're a sort of version of yourself you don't quite recognise. Well, you don't, you don't sound on TV or in any recorded medium the way you sound inside your own head when you're speaking. It, it, the, the sound has a different quality. As I'm speaking to you now, I suppose my voice is resonating in my rib cage and I'm, I'm hearing myself from inside my ears as well as outside but when you're on the tv there's there's a different quality to the sound it's probably more as your voice sounds to other people and that's always a bit of a shock and then of course as it's tv you, you have to look at yourself which is always absolutely disgusting in my case <laughs> but i just don't like it so to be honest if i am sort of lazily flicking around the tv and i come across an old top gear i usually continue to flick until I find something else. You're pretty much the only man on the planet that does that. Most people just go, great, Top Gear. I've seen this one 30 times. I'll watch it again. You know, it's... Well, that's nice. I mean, I, I, it, it is great. I, I hope other people don't flick past old Top Gears. But um, personally, I... Yes, I... And I, to be honest, I know what happens next. That's the other problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know, I know lots of people have watched certain episodes many, many times because they're very, you know, they're very popular. Um, but because I was there and I was doing it, I have a very clear memory of what happens next. I think in everything I've ever been involved, Top Gear Grand Tour plus all my solo projects, I know what happens. So, yes. you know, part of the surprise is lost for me. Yes, that's that's. Fair I was really. saying, I bet in a, I bet in a minute he's going to say a bit about that pink Lego brick, and then I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. That's and also slightly impressive that you've got that sort of photogenic memory it's, it's like retired footballers that can recall every minute of every match they've played in how can you do yes, that supposedly they can remember passes and, and shots that they missed because they should have been you know half a pace further forward it, it is a bit like that but i think i can well I, do, I wouldn't say i have a particularly remarkable memory and it's not um i don't have a photographic memory of things but i find that you know all those columns i wrote years ago i can still remember great big chunks of them I can still remember exact phrases I used because I had to labour over them. I, didn't, I don't find it an easy process. I find it quite painful. And we also did, I mean, we used to do our live show, Top Gear Live, in the old days. And often when I'm with Clarkson and Hammond, we find that we can remember great tracks of the script we came up with, which often, to be honest, we only used to write a day or two before we started performing it. And we can also remember each other's lines. 
And it's, I mean, it's completely useless knowledge. We're never going to need it again. We're never going to put those shows on again, but it's still there. But Jeremy says, this is what I've made. I know to say that looks like a shell's fallen over in Bunnings Warehouse if we're in Australia, but B&Q if we're performing in England. I still know that. I could go out on the stage now. We all could, and we could just do it. That's tragic, isn't it? We should use that brain space as something much more constructive. Well, it is. It's amazing. I remember Paul McCartney once produced an album called Memory Almost Full, and it was all about, um, you know, the original... uh, mp3 devices you know that's what they were they would get full of like two albums and then you were done and i thought yes, that that's was right very... they were, didn't they? the old yeah. the old silvery ipod exactly right. and, and i thought that was very timely because i sort of I, I i'm someone that seems to forget quite a lot whereas you do seem to have this great recall i mean it's, it's a bit like i, I remember watching a, an interview with ian mckellen and he could just pull out you know soliloquies from so many different plays over the years oh yeah well actors are amazing i mean how do they remember all those words in the first place because they have, if you're doing Shakespeare, say, you have to get the words exactly right. When we're doing Top Gear Live, or we're doing, you know, a, a, a roughly scripted sequence on the grand tour, it doesn't matter if you don't use the exact words that we agreed on when we were bashing the script together. They're they're bullet points. As long as you say what you mean, yes, that's fine. In fact, it's often more natural if you do it like that. But if you're an actor and you know doing serious films and serious serious plays you have to you have to remember all the words it's like remembering a volume of poetry and i find that incredible i mean what if you forget yeah yeah then what happens? there'll be someone in the audience with the actual with the actual words reading along with you yeah i suppose so yeah. but it would it would scare me constantly that <laughs> You've got to get it right. Um, James, just uh, last one about the Top Gear, because, you know, obviously, I don't know why I keep calling it the Top Gear, by the way. It's obviously, oh, A lot of people do, but a lot of people just call it the gear, or the used gear. to, when that was fashionable youth speak. <laughs> well, I'll just call it Top Gear, because that's what it's known as. Um, when it started to get huge, when it really blew up, you know, you'd, you'd been doing the show for a few years, did that change the pressure with, to, to, to how you approach the recordings, to the, the scale of the uh, events that you had to deliver, or, or was it just you took it all in your stride because it was three mates doing what you do with the same crew in the same place? To, to be honest, I don't think it really made a difference to the way we worked. We, we never allowed ourselves to be swayed by anything like market research or metrics or any of that stuff that the world is obsessed with these days. We, we always made the show we wanted to make and to be honest, we always we always made a show for Britain on the BBC as we were on then. That that was the way we thought about it, and that happened to be popular all over the world. But if we then started trying to say, how can we make sure this is popular in in Russia, or how can we make sure the Americans will watch this, we'd have we'd have blown it because we'd have turned into a into a sort of branding exercise. We weren't. We were three blokes having a laugh making a TV show. It just happened to become enormous. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, that's amazing because I would have thought it would have, I don't know, just become quite quite frightening, you know, because it's so big. Well, I did, yeah, I don't know about frightening. Um, if you stopped and thought about it, you'd think, you'd think, crikey, how's that happened? But because it happened quite gradually, um, it's not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like um, somebody becoming an overnight sensation because they'd, they'd won... Britain's Got Talent or something like that. That didn't happen to us. We grew from a from what we used to refer to as a pony-assed car show into the into the big car show that everybody knows. But because because it wasn't sudden, I don't think we were we were too messed up by it. 
I like that you classify it as a car show, James, because I, I believe the technical term for it these days is it's an entertainment series, isn't it? Factual entertainment. It is factual entertainment. That is how it would be described in the world of TV. Not that that need necessarily bother other people who simply watch the television. But it's, I mean, it's, this is quite a complicated subject. It was a car show, and it was ultimately about cars. And every now and then we'd slip in a few things to make it clear that we did actually know broadly what we were talking about. But you're quite right that it was, it, it gradually became more of a sort of real life sitcom. And I, and I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, you were talking about car expertise. I don't, I don't think I am a a car expert, or or even a car nerd necessarily. But I, I sort of understand cars as an idea. And I realised when I thought about it that all those columns of magazine articles I did for Car and Auto Car and Top Gear magazine and the Daily Telegraph and Scotland and Sunday Country Life, all these other people who I've written for and most of whom have fired me, um, it was because Cars were a were a fashionable subject um, from the nineties onwards, and they were a, they were a good thing to write about because starting from cars, which are, which are of relevance to pretty much everybody, whether you drive or not, whether you use cars or not, they still have a massive impact on our lives and the way society is shaped. Starting with cars, you can make observations about everything: religion, politics philosophy, science fiction, you know, everything. You yes. can relate it all to cars. It's a great springboard. And I, and I realized that I ended up working on a car magazine way back in 1990, uh, you know, as a production person doing sub-editing, writing headlines and making the pages fit together and so on. And I liked the subject. And then I drifted in, having been fired by various magazines, I drifted into writing freelance. And cars was what I knew and the area I was familiar with. And then it became a great excuse for being a freelance writer. It might easily have happened with, I don't know, travel. I did do a bit of travel. It might have happened with you know, new tech. If I'd ended up on Tomorrow's Technology Today magazine or Wired or something, I'd, I might have been doing something completely different. But I would have still, I would have still thought of it as a, a good platform for writing, even though I find writing very painful and. And I feel like I've sort of exhausted it in some ways. That that was actually what blew my frock up. That's what made me hungry. Yeah. Which is why I always say to people, you know, if young people ask me for advice, I say, my advice is that 97% of all advice is crap, because generally it was, and most of it was for me. But if I was going to give another piece of advice to young people, I'd say you have to do something that genuinely excites you, not what you think you should do or what you're expected to do or what you think will make you a good living. You have to do something that you are in some way impassioned about because if you're not, you won't enjoy it. And if you, won't, if you don't enjoy it, you won't do it well, and then you won't do well at it. Yes, yes, exactly. Follow what you love and see what falls out. Absolutely, you must. Was there a time, James, back um, back when young James was was starting out? <clears throat> was there a time when you thought that you might become a musician? Because you're a very proficient flautist, I believe, and and you can play the piano to a rather high standard. Yes, I was, I'm actually better on the piano. Um, but no, I, I mean, I did a music degree. I don't honestly think I I ever imagined I would be a musician. That was another thing that I did because I happened to be able to do it. And I quite fancy going to university. You have to remember, I was I was pretty useless as a young person. I had no ambition and no vision of my future. I was pretty lazy, and 
uh, I was a very late developer. So the, the future was always a gray fog. It still is a bit of a gray fog, to be honest, but there's a little bit of definition in it there. I love it. James, there's a few things that I've um, I've had random facts that, that have kind of been swimming around in my mind about you for, for quite a long time now. And I, I don't know how many of them are true or not. Can I can I just sense check a few and then and then I'd like to talk about theory tests because I know that, that, you know, you've got a fantastic new app out, which we'll obviously discuss. Um, and I also want to talk yeah. to you about cooking, incidentally, and uh, and various other things. Oh, yeah. OK. If one of the questions is, is my dad really a priest? No, he isn't. Actually, no, that wasn't one of the questions, but this is a random thing that comes up when you Google yourself. I don't know if you ever do. Um, but, oh, no, of course not. I've got to... <laughs> Well, you know when you just put the name and then Google kind of fills in all those extra bits, you know, um, it, it gives you options for, for what it might be. One of those... I'm going to As I have my laptop next to me as I'm talking to you, I'm going to start putting James into Google. Okay. Not what... I've got James Bond, James Martin, James Corden, James Hunt. No, you James... have to go. You have to go James May first. Obviously, you've got to put your, put your full bit in just to see what happens. So, okay, so... if I put James M, I'm one, two, three, four, five, six down. That's. I mean, that's heartbreaking, James. If you put James May in, then I. Oh, think... well, then I'm at the top with a yeah. terrible picture of me with a fat face. Yeah, so, there so, you go. So somewhere <laughs> down there, somewhere down the scrolling, there's a link to, and I don't know the answer to this. I'm pretty sure it's not true, but I've got to ask it anyway. Brian May is your brother. No, he's not, sadly. <laughs> I would love to have Brian May as my brother because he's great um, and he's fantastic hair. But, he does. <laughs> he does. He's a lovely, lovely man and he saves the badges. A lovely man. Yeah. He's a... Uh, Slightly older than me, so isn't he? He'd have to be my big brother. He would be your big brother. Yeah, yeah. But, but... no, there is. We are not in any way related. I, I haven't knowingly met him. So I know people who know Brian May, and they say he's, he's a lovely man, and I'm sure he is. He's interested in stars and badges and all sorts of really cool stuff. But, yes, and no. he's got a guitar made out of a Harley Davidson. Yes, all, all those things. He's he's interesting, but he's not my brother. I I'd love him to be my brother. No offense to my actual brother if he's listening. <laughs> But uh, no, no relation. Sorry. So I went down that wormhole, James, when I saw, you know, this this thread about about how there's this guy that's convinced your brothers. OK, so I, I read through it. Do you know who else you're linked to as a as a sibling? Theresa May. Yes, I've heard that one. So <laughs> supposedly my big sister. But, um, no, awesome. not really. Also not true. Okay, good. That, that wasn't actually on my list of things to discuss with you, but you know, you brought up family. I thought we'd, I thought we'd explore it. So no, one of the random facts, and this isn't from from Google. This is just from from me somehow sort of knowing this. And again, I might have made it up. Is it true that you once bought a lawnmower, even though you didn't own a lawn, just so you could tinker with it? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That is true. Well, there's a bit of a backstory to that. We had we had a fantastic lawnmower when I was a kid. It was quite old, actually. It was already quite old then. I think it was probably from the late 50s, early 60s. It was an Atco twin clutch cylinder lawnmower. And it was the first thing I learned to drive. It was not, not a sit-on one or anything glamorous like that, just a walk-behind mower. And I used to mow the grass all the time at home. When I was a kid, we had a sort of a reasonably large rectangular lawn. And I bloody loved this lawnmower, getting it to work and stuff. And then I, my mum and dad moved to another house that didn't really have a big lawn. It had more more of a sort of undulating rockery. They didn't need the lawnmower anymore. And they gave it to a friend of mine who had just bought a house with a lawn. And then he sold it, which annoyed me. I'm still annoyed about it to this day. 
And then hundreds of years later, by which I mean about four years ago, we made the reassembler series and we decided to do a lawnmower. And a man delivered a lawnmower in bits from the British Lawnmower Museum, which is in Southport, I think, yes. And I said to him, I don't suppose you know the Atco Twin Clutch Lawnmower, like the one I had when I was a kid. And he said, oh, we've got one of those. We've got two at the museum. We've got a spare one. You can have it, if you like, for this much money. So I said, yes, I'd love that. So, yes, I had this lawnmower in my garage with no lawn. But then I made up for that. A few years later, I went and bought a house that did have a lawn. Good. And did you use but the, the lawn is almost, It's too steep for the Atco, so oh. I still have any grass with it. I just look at it <laughs> and smell it. It's really tragic, actually. I shouldn't admit to this stuff. Well, the smelling it's a slightly curious <laughs> aside, but yeah, no, that's great. Um, I've got a couple of other random facts for you before we could move on to more serious conversations. Um, and, and this one, I believe, is true, but I, I, I would love to hear the story behind it. Um, stop Go me on. if you know where I'm going. It involves Gordon Ramsay and a bull penis. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, it depends what Gordon Ramsay and a bull's penis you've heard. There is a true story about Gordon Ramsay and a bull's penis. <laughs> What what have you heard? Well, <laughs> again, the internet's got its own versions, but, but the one I've heard, uh, in fact, I think I've seen you do this, is you you and Gordon Ramsay had a, had a food-eating competition, and on the menu was bull's penis and, and rotten shark, and you won. Yes, that is true. That was on the F word quite a long time ago now. Um, yes, I, I think it, there was a sort of... Manhood challenge from Gordon Ramsay, can you eat these potentially quite foul things, culminating in the rotten shark meat from Iceland, which is famously horrible. Um, but I'm okay at eating hot things or fairly disgusting things. And he's a, he's actually a bit delicate, Gordon, bless him. Is he? And I think, yeah, I think he got, I don't think the bull's penis bothered him. What was the other thing? There was a bull's penis, I think there was testicles, and then eventually the rotten shark meat, but he couldn't do the shark meat. And I managed, I mean, I, I I did wobble a bit as I put it in my mouth. And I remember thinking, I've got to keep a straight face and look calm here. Because if I can just stand it for another five or ten seconds, I think Gordon's going to puke. And then he did. <laughs> and then I knew I was on the way to victory. And I think it's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so, I mean, even just thinking about it, it's making me feel a bit queasy. So <laughs> good for you for going through with it. I mean, is that does that sort of show that you've got quite a competitive side? Because that wouldn't be apparent. No, I, I don't think I am at all competitive. I think that's why I've, I was held back for so many years. I don't really care, <laughs> to be honest. But um, I just thought it would be amusing, actually, if I could manage to outwit Gordon Ramsay at eating. I have to say, I didn't go from there and start saying to people, we must go out tonight and have rotten shark meat from Iceland. It's wonderful. I've never eaten it since. <laughs> Every time people bring it up, I just say, oh, yeah, I've had that. Is yeah, that... I don't and try I've had it. I mean, you've you've certainly done some things that people would would describe as not normal. You know, quite strange. You know, uh, I, I remember watching. Well, it was very recently, earlier this earlier this year. You you carried well. You helped to carry a float with a one ton willy on it. In Japan, yeah, yeah. But that's. I mean, that that seems quite quite comedic and absurd to us, and it and to all the many hundreds of thousands of Instagrammers who go to that festival in Kawasaki simply to be photographed either eating a penis-shaped ice lolly or helping to carry a giant penis. But it's it's a simple fertility thing in Japan. It's not um, it's not pornographic. It's it's not lewd. It's not considered embarrassing in any way. It's just, I mean, it, it all goes back to an ancient fertility festival 
where people could go to be blessed in the hope that they would have children. And it's turned into this, it is a massive Instagram festival now of giant penises, but it, it all has quite deep and sincere spiritual meaning. The trouble is, as soon as you put a bloke from a sort of slightly awkward bloke from Britain underneath the giant and very heavy <laughs> penis, it becomes comedic, yeah. but it isn't really. Yeah, I mean, it's only like parading a saint, you know, like the Catholics would parade a saint or the Hindus would parade a big, a big Vishnu through the streets during festivals. That's that's what it is. That's all it is. It just happens to be a giant cock. I love it. I love it. And it just sort of highlights the kind of bizarre nature of the things that you've had access to. And, and part of that is the privilege of television, of course. You know, we, we when you're on camera, you have access to things that the, that the common man, as it were, doesn't necessarily be able to ex- get exposed to on a regular basis. So you have seen some incredibly diverse and remarkable things. What what really stands out for you? When you when I say to you, what's the most kind of crazy or fascinating or remarkable thing you've seen? What What comes to mind? Well, I think it, um, big things, it would be, for example, the flight I did in the U-2 spy plane up at 70-something thousand feet with um, the U.S. Air Force so I could see the edge of the atmosphere and the curvature of the Earth. And that was that was amazing. And I know that, you know, apart from the people who actually fly those high-altitude spy planes, and there's only a handful of them, nobody's really done that. I think only two civilians have ever been up in that, and I'm one of them. And it was... And it really, breath, genuinely breathtaking experience. Partly because I had a spacesuit on and had to breathe oxygen and so on. And you have yeah. to sort of suck it in quite hard and consciously. But uh, I think that that still remains one of the one of the most popular things I've done on TV. Certainly one of the longest running. It, it's always being repeated. It keeps coming up on YouTube and preview and all over the place. And people still send me tweets and things about it, saying, "Oh, you were very lucky to do that." And it was how long ago was it? it must be. 12 years yeah yeah it was quite something like that i mean it's it's back when i had dark hair and a fresh face (laughs) i mean when you were up there were you aware of the privilege or were you just too awestruck by what was happening no i was aware i was aware of it right from the point where they they agreed to take me up because we were we were talking about um making a program about space and they said well one sequence in this is you could you could potentially do the closest thing a, a normal person could do to being an astronaut, which is going in a high altitude flight, but you know, in a spy plane, and we could insert this as a section in the film, you know, like a little five or six minute sequence. But everybody said it's highly unlikely they're not going to agree to it. Why would you know the U.S. Air Force, a secret, a secretive arm of the U.S. Air Force, agree to take a British civilian up in one of their spy planes? They've only got one two seater. But anyway, the producer went through the motions and rang up the air base and got through to the the colonel or the or the major or whoever ran it and, and, and he said oh I don't suppose if we sent one of our TV presenters over you could take him up for a flight in a U2 and he went hell yeah come wow. across wow. wow we were just so so as a result of that because you have to do quite a bit of you have to do quite a bit of training before you're allowed in it you have to learn about the space suit you have to you have to learn about what happens should you bail out because if you have to eject at 70 you know over 70,000 feet over California, you can land in a desert, you can land in, in an urban area, you can land in the sea, you can land in something a bit like a jungle. So you have to you have to understand all the survival procedures and how to do it. So there's, you know, you have to understand decompression and the effects and what it will feel like. So there was three or four days of quite intense training before I was even allowed near the aeroplane. So having done all that, you know, the producer said, if we film all of this, we can use it as a sequence in our film about space. 
but we can also make a separate half an hour documentary just about going up on this yeah. high altitude flight, which we did, and that was that was the blockbuster. That was the thing that has remained very popular ever since. It's um, such a cool thing to do. I mean, with all that training as well, James, and, and the experience, not just with that, with, but with so many of the other things that you've done, does that mean you're, you're pretty handy in a crisis? Uh, well, I like to think I'm reasonably calm in one. Um, I, I, I don't like panic. Um, but some things do make me very jittery. Like, you know, I don't like heights, famously, even though I've just been talking about getting yeah. the high up. It doesn't get much higher like, than where you've been, yeah. yeah I, don't, I mean, I don't like high buildings and that sort of thing. Um, but, I, yes, I try not to panic. I hope I, I remain reasonably calm. Like, are you the guy to sit next to on a flight where suddenly horrific turbulence hits and everyone else is screaming? Are you the guy that's there going, it's okay, don't worry, it's just pockets of air? Actually, yes. Well, I, I have been in that position once. I was on a, not a long flight, it was a European one, but I was sitting next to a, a nun uh, <laughs> from Italy, I think, and it was quite turbulent on takeoff and climb, and she was very nervous and had a rosary beads going, and I could tell she was terrified, so I, I held a hand for her, and she quite liked that. She was um, reassured, you which should... is odd, You'd think a nun would actually seek the assurance from God rather than from a scruffy bloke who happened to be sitting next to her. Yeah, but... she should be turning to you saying, it's okay, I got this. Not, you know, not the other yeah, way around. Yeah, the other way around. What a nice actually, thing she, to do. I was, saying, I, was, I was holding her hand because I was terrified, but I, I just didn't let her know that. <laughs> <laughs> that was some serious turbulence and uh, she, she got you through it. Well, you got through it together. I love it. I mean, you've, you've talked a lot about the pressures of, of being a modern man and, and what manliness is these days. It's ever-changing, isn't it? Yes, I think it probably is. We first addressed this when we made Man Lab years ago, and that was a bit, I mean, it was a joke. It wasn't really that serious, but it was a, it was a, the new shape of the male backlash, which is that men, you know, we've had enough of all this pretending we're endearingly useless and laddish. We need to go back to being useful because that's what people want of us. But I think it's moved on quite a bit since then. We were a bit ahead of our time with that thought, but um, it's moved on quite a lot since we had those sort of rather fatuous ideas. I think manly is as manly does, probably. Uh, The distinction between the roles of men and women has been, you know, blurring and melding for as long as I've been alive and a lot, you know, a long time before that as well. So I don't actually, I don't know what it means these days, to be honest. I mean, it's, it's, it's become a slightly risky term, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, I'm sure it has, yes. I think the, the idea of declaring yourself a man or, or declaring yourself to be anything in particular is probably deeply unfashionable. And, and that's probably quite a good thing. I, I, I like these things being constantly questioned um, because that's the way the world moves forward. I know a lot of people, including some of my work colleagues, get upset with the young people because, oh, they question everything and they pull you up on everything and they won't let you say this and they won't let you say that. And I think, well, yeah, that's quite annoying. And a lot of what they're talking about will turn out to be nonsense, just like a lot of what we talked about turned out to be nonsense. But amongst them, there might be a, I don't know, a Martin Luther King or an Elizabeth Fry or someone like that. So the process has to be allowed to happen. Mm. And we have to accept that the future belongs to the young and it's their job to just basically make us redundant and question everything we thought was sacrosanct. It has to happen. So, yeah, so back to your, I've made that rather complicated, but back to your original question, what does it mean to be a man in the modern world? Um, I think the most manly thing you can do is be open-minded, really. Yeah. 
I, I don't think you could put that any better. Exactly. Be receptive to change as well, I suppose. Yeah. And there's such a lot of change going on. I, mean, I, I think I, I feel quite privileged, although I, I hate aging and I hate being old now. I think I have lived through a very interesting time because my childhood, well, up to my 20s, was in many ways the, the, the very nub end of the Victorian era. Everything was still analog and mechanical and rather laboured and painful and and presumed. Um, and then we sort of moved. I, I witnessed the move into the digital age and the dawn of the internet, which just, it made such a difference to everything. It's the most remarkable thing that's ever happened to humankind, in my view. And, you know, if I talk to people like, if I talk to someone age 20 about this, and I try to explain about how difficult it was simply to find stuff out when I was student age, and you had to go to libraries, and which meant you had to put your clothes on, and yeah. so, you know, everything, everything took ages, and nothing was particularly reliable, whereas, whereas now everybody, everybody effectively has the equivalent of access to the Library of Alexandria in their pocket. Yes. And so People complain about that, but it's a fantastic thing, and it can only be overall a force for good. We're better informed and we're more aware as a result. Yes, it's crazy. So it's the, the things you can do on the toilet these days. Yeah, yeah you can do pretty much everything there. It's, it's fantastic. I do, do do quite a lot of my best work there, in fact. <laughs> but, also, but as well as that, there's, you know, in the, in, the last, in the last decade, especially in the last four or five years, Everything that we held dear and we thought was permanent is being questioned. Things about society, class, race, the environment, how we consume things, how we think about things. Everything is up for grabs and it's, it's baffling and it's confusing, but it's also incredibly exciting. There was nothing like as much going on when I was a youth. And I, I, don't, think, I don't think the youth of Britain, since that's the one I... I encounter many. I don't, I don't think they've been in better shape ever, really. They are going to change the world. They're not just going to think they're doing it like we did. They really are going to do it. And good so? luck. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting times, isn't it? Um, speak- it's very exciting. Speaking- it's keeping me alive, to yeah. be honest. <laughs> Is it? I think so, yeah. Because you're not, I, I again, not meaning to get too personal, James, but you're, you're not a father, are you? No. And, and was that from choice or just from, from life? Uh, no, I think that's just just a result of life. That's possible. Let's put that down to being a late developer as well. <laughs> are you? I mean, are you an uncle to many? Uh, you know, are, are you close yes, to I've got the niece, youth? Nieces and nephews of many ages. Um, I spend quite a lot of time working with with people in their in their twenties. I mean, that's the nature of TV. It has a lot of you know, it has a big influx of people of that age who come in and then disperse and maybe move on to other things. You know, they, they it's all very fluid. So I, I spend a lot of time with what I now consider young people because I'm in my mid fifties and I I like it. I find it I find it very stimulating. I don't want to be one of those one of those weird old people who's clinging on to you by hanging around with their kids. because you know, that's embarrassing and cringeworthy. But I, I I just find I find their energy and, and their uh, and their outlook interesting and stimulating because they will think of things that I simply haven't thought of and see things in a way that I, I wouldn't have seen them if I didn't talk to them about it because you know, no matter how much you try to be in touch and with the zeitgeist and the modern age and, and be of the time, it gets quite difficult to do when you have a sort of 50-year catalogue of not being with the time. <laughs> 
Well, and and you know what? How refreshing to hear you say that because I can imagine many twenty-year-olds thinking at the idea of of sitting with James May and and having a pint, for example, they would be so fascinated and and honoured to be sat with you talking to you. It would almost blow them away to learn that you would be just as interested to be there with them. Is is really really interesting. Well, yeah. I'm that would be very flattering if they did think that, although I know that a lot of them think I'm just an old fart. But that's fair <laughs> enough. That's their job. But you play a bit of a role sometimes, though, don't you? I mean, the Captain Sensible thing, etc. You know, it's it's not sort of... It's not the real you, is it? No, no not entirely. I mean, we, we are caricatures on TV. You know, it is exactly like somebody drawing a caricature. You pick on a few aspects of someone and exaggerate it. So a cartoonist gives you you know, big ears because your ears are a little bit big or a small, really small mouth because your mouth is a little bit small and so on. And we, we do do that on television, but I'm not, I mean, I don't want to spoil it because it's all, it's all a lovely illusion and it's, you know, a Magic Lantern show, but I, I'm not really stuck in the past. If anything, I'm the one who's not stuck in the past out of the three of us. Uh, I think the other two are sometimes going a bit, the, you know, in the wrong direction. Richard Hammond is definitely becoming a sort of 1920s cad in his tweed that is <laughs> 1930s sports car that he's got. As well. um, but we can't help the fact that we are, you know, we are seniors now. That's just the, the sad truth of it. And, and, and that's the thing that bothers me most. I've, I've talked about this a lot with other people. I, I don't want to get too sort of navel-gazing about it. But when I was when I was much younger, and we used to get talks at school and, you know, warnings and lectures and we'd give them leaflets about road safety and don't play on the railways and don't smoke and don't take drugs because you could become an addict, you'd get a heart attack, you could get cancer, you could be run over, you could have a terrible accident, you know, and you think it won't happen to you, but it could. I did think all that could happen to me. I accepted that. I accepted that when I went out on long bike rides, you know, it was potentially a bit dangerous. Some of the stuff we got up to was potentially dangerous. But I never thought I'd be old because that was unthinkable. Yeah. You, you, you cannot imagine being old when you're 16. Yes, and, it, and, and it, also when you're 16, the, the thought of being 30 is old, isn't it? Well, it, it, it is, yes, it's inconceivably ancient. Yeah. And yet here I am. And it, it's actually, I, I actually haven't had any of those accidents or caused any of those diseases or, or given myself any of those uh, life-stopping dependencies dependencies like drugs or anything like that or alcoholism I, I haven't done that so as a result i'm now able to experience what it's like to get old and i hate it i really do hate it really what i mean what, what is it that bothers you so much about it well i suppose i think it will be, when you're young things and quite simple things can be can be unimaginably exciting in, in a way that we can, can't really remember anymore when we get older. So, you know, a pop song, a, a new bicycle, um, seeing your friend, I mean, it, is, it, it is a form of delirium being, being a teenager and being in your early 20s, I think. And no matter how, you know, it doesn't matter how successful or how wealthy or how influential, uh, influential you become when you're older, you never quite you never quite replicate the sheer thrill of having no cares and uh, what feels like an eternity before you. Mm. It's, it's just never quite as good as that. And it's, it's a shame. You know, it happens once and then it's gone. And people say youth is wasted on the young. And obviously when you're young, you can't appreciate what it means to be young. But you are 
being young and and it's it's utterly immersive and it, and it's utterly joyous not for everybody i accept that you know some people have a terrible time when they're young but i liked it and uh, i know a lot of other people liked it and and we can it's not just that we can't be young anymore we can't replicate the sort of the, the passion of being young well is the there, passion for everything is there anything that 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 gives you that sense of delirium that you alluded to there at, at, at age mid-50s? Not to the same extent. I mean, I still get, I'm still very interested in things. I, I, actually, I did buy a new bicycle a few weeks back. Well, I built one out of bits. I bought a, a, a nice carbon frame, and then I bought all the bits I'd need to make a really a really special bike, you know, a bespoke one for me, and I, I put it together very carefully. I do get very excited about things like that. And I, I'm, I'm slightly faddy and a bit nerdy about things i will spend a long time looking at things to be honest whilst whilst i'm talking to you because i'm a bit fidgety i have on my desk a japanese woodworking joint that i was given when we did the our man in japan series we visited the place that made and restored temples which are obviously entirely wooden structures and they have these amazingly complicated uh, woodworking joints that the japanese specialize in you can watch these animated on youtube and they made one for me. It just joins two pieces end to end, and it's got a wedge that pushes in. I'm, I'm explaining this now, and I'm actually doing it because I've been fiddling with it. When you pull the wedge out, you slide the two pieces apart by about, I don't know, three, four millimeters. That was the sound if you heard it as yeah. it coming apart. And then there's this incredibly elaborate series of tongues and grooves and mortises. This whole piece of wood is only about an inch square. They're interlock, and if I put it back together, um, hang on, you've got a line, and it's so... It's so precisely made, then you can't hear it go back together. It just slides in. Then I put this little wedge in the hole as a tap, and it's now locked together. Now, the reason I mention that is because because I'm a bit red, uh, restless and fidgety. I have been in, concentrating entirely on what you're saying and what I'm saying in return, but my fingers have been fiddling with this thing um, because I, I, I just spend a lot of time looking at quite small, simple things or pictures or, you know, fiddling with my mobile phone folding bits of paper. I, I am a bit faddy and a bit nerdy, and I, and I do love all that stuff, and I get excited, but I still don't think I'm as excited as when I was 16 and I ran home from school because I wanted to listen to a new record I had. Yeah. I wanted that so desperately, I, I would have just murdered people who got in the way. <laughs> yes, and it was the most important thing in the world, and no one understands. Quite. In the world, yes, yeah. it really was the most important thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. There's the world again. Sorry about that. Um, James, I want to talk to you about O'Cook, but before we do that, I am mindful that we haven't spoken about your, your current project, which I do want to discuss because it's, it's interesting and it's, and it's right and it's the reason we managed to get you to come on the show, which has been amazing, which is, of course, your, your brand new app, My Theory Test by James May. Yes. Um, well, what can I say about My Theory Test? The Theory Test is, as I've as I've already said many times, it is rather dull. Yes. I, I say this in the app. It, it is dull, but you do have to do it. So so we've tried to we've tried to make the process less dull. That's not the same as interesting, but it is less dull. And it, the thing that I mean the reason I got involved in this, obviously I didn't code it or anything like that. I I've made the videos and put my face on it and so on. But I was I was amazed when I was approached by the app developers just how many people are failing it. Yeah, I couldn't because, believe this. Yeah, it's more than half now. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's at an all-time low. The pass rate is going down. And it's about, I mean, it's getting on for 2 million people a year in Britain take the theory test. Half of them are failing. 
It's twenty. I mean, it's twenty-three pounds, isn't it? To take the theory test at the moment, and it may go up. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, being spent on failing, it's, it's a lot of money being given away to the government. So, um, I I sort of thought that this has to stop. People have to start <laughs> passing this theory test. It isn't actually, or it shouldn't be that difficult. I, I still maintain that you know seventy-five percent of it is absolute common sense. Most road signs are very obvious. Most of the situations they give you, you know, what should you do when there's a cyclist in front and you want to turn left? It's pretty obvious that you don't overtake the cyclist and turn left. You know, the, the answers to me seem very obvious, but I, 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 I don't know why people are failing. I, I suspect there's a certain amount of not taking it seriously enough because it is just a bit dull. <laughs> um, and also, I think people get a bit panicked by it. They, they start to imagine that it's much more complicated than it really is. Well, it also so, has that magic word test in it, doesn't it? And that does things to some oh, people. Oh, yes. And it's, and it's a government test as well, really. I mean, that's a dead hand if ever there was one. <laughs> so the app try, you know, is an attempt. And I, I, I do think it works. Obviously, I would say that because it's mine. But <laughs> be a bit of a worry you know, if you were like, yeah, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, actually. No, look at that. It does work because it... it it does two things. It simplifies it by breaking down the official categories of questions into much more, um, if you like, much more real-world categories. Like, you know, we call them setting off city streets, scenic routes, bigger roads. You know, it's obvious what I'm talking about. Mm. And it's also, it has within it, you don't know this when you're using it, but it has this, this thing called spaced repetition learning. And what this does is, as... You go in and you do the James May way, which is your personalized training plan. Once you've put the date of your test in, the app will work out how much you need to do every day to have revised everything and try, you know, effectively learned all 707 questions that you could be asked. And the clever thing it does is as you go through the James May way, you're sort of effectively practicing, it, it records which bits you're not very good at. You know, things you consistently get wrong. And then it reintroduces those, but not immediately. It waits a certain amount of time and then oh, pokes you the same question or a related question. And this has been shown in laboratories with people with electrodes on their brains and so on to actually improve retaining the knowledge. You know, it, it does improve learning. So we like to think that this will greatly improve your chances of passing. And I hope so, because I mean, I. Somebody said to me the other day, they said, oh, is this right to do an analysis? You shouldn't be encouraging people to drive. I think, well, we're not encouraging people to drive. They want to do it anyway. We're just trying to make it less painful for them. And actually, to be honest, by, by making this stuff more, I'm not going to say fun, because it's never fun, but making it easier to use and easier to absorb might actually make them better or happier or safer drivers. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it can make them worse ones. So that you know, there's two benefits. Buy it for your teenage children in the sure and certain knowledge that they will be better drivers. <laughs> well, mean, that's an emotional sell. There you go. I mean, look, the, the fact is you're not encouraging people to drive. You're encouraging people to pass the test. You know, it's. Yeah. I'd say there's a, quite a difference. I mean, it's interesting for me because I'm old enough to have not had to have done a theory test. So I was, I was curious. You know, like oh. you, you didn't have one either, did you? Um, no, of course not. So I was, I was curious. I was like, well, what, what does the theory test consist of? So I, I've used the app as well. It's good. I think it's really good. Thank you. I think it works. Yes, Have you tried to do a mock test yet? The first thing I did when we, I mean, whilst we were still developing it, but once we had it developed up to, up to the point where I could do this, I just simply did one of the mock tests. And I did, I did pass, 
But I was there were a few things I thought actually I don't know that. Yes. I've forgotten that, or I've, I've just become so inattentive, I, I just don't notice anymore. <laughs> and I thought that's interesting. So I, I invented a date for myself. I need to do. Yes, I have I've to done do that. This, I've done that. To spec, you know, I was part of the development team, but and I've just I've just reset it again. I've put a, a, a test date in of about six weeks' time, and I'm going through the James May way and seeing if I can get 100% in a mock test. But it's very difficult because your concentration can slip, and you just. You start to get cocky, and you think, "Oh yeah, well that's obviously yeah, that's no, clearly that not. one." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. I mean, you yourself, you didn't, you didn't pass your driving test on your first attempt. You're a second attempter. I am a second attempter. Yes, I failed on the emergency stop. Oh no, which some would say is the most important. Well, yes, I think it probably is actually, <laughs> but I didn't really understand the nature of the test because I've, I've told this story many times, but. Um, I was taught to drive by my dad because that was cheaper, frankly, and I never had any money. And he told me that the that the driving instructor would bang his clipboard. Obviously, people had a clipboard in those days. Yeah. He'd bang his clipboard on the dashboard, and that meant you had to do an emergency stop. So I thought, ah, right, I'll be ready for that. <laughs> so I was doing my driving test, and I was doing everything okay. You know, I was signaling, mirroring, all, all that stuff, you know, driving on the correct side of the road, going the right way around roundabouts, all of that was all great. But he held his clipboard and he was making it, putting little ticks on things. I could see these out of the corner of my eye. And every time he moved it, I braced myself, really thinking this is going to be the emergency stop. And it never was. What he did when we were driving down a, a little empty side road on a housing estate, he suddenly said, look out, there's a child in the road. But there wasn't, obviously. So I said, no, there isn't. <laughs> and so, so I was failed. But I, I simply didn't know that that's how he might do the emergency stop. And as a result of that, before I took the test the second time, I had, I had, I think, two or maybe three driving lessons. I had a friend whose father ran a driving school. So I had three, three driving lessons with him. And he said, well, you know, you, you, you can drive the car. That's, that's, you can obviously do that. What you haven't done is learn to pass the test. Right. So that's what he essentially taught me. And in a way, our app is doing two things. It's making you learn this stuff, which is important. I mean, you do have to know road signs. and Absolutely. You do have to how far to leave to the car in front and so on. Um, but it also helps you to pass this test, which people obviously find a bit onerous and a bit tedious. And we we hope we've made it, you know, a lot less painful. If you if you set this up in good time, you know, you plan, I, I think theory tests are quite difficult to get at the moment because there's been a bit of a rush on them after lockdown. So if you've got your theory test in, say, two months' time and you put that into the into the app, you will be made to practice for going back to what you said earlier about doing things when you're on the bob, exactly that much time, that's all it takes. If you do that every day and it will remind you to do it, you should pass. There, there really is not much excuse for failing. Nailed and it's not, it, it's not that difficult. Most of it is common sense. Of course it is. Driving is not, a, you know, it's not like flying a space shuttle. It's not a special skill. Billions of people do it yes, it's, quite successfully. It's important to point out as well that they don't want you to fail. You know, they, they, they would like you to no. be able to, you know, know, have the knowledge so that you can pass. Yes, of course. Of course. The world is generally a better place if people pass this stuff. And, of course, you can't go on to do the actual, the, the fun bit, which is learning to drive the real car, unless you do this first. So, you know, 
I'm going to sound like a prop. I'm going to sound like my own dad here talking to me, age 16. But I'm afraid, young people, you just have to knuckle down and get on with it. Too right. Absolutely. Hard work equals results. Done. Yeah. Fair enough. Just do, just do the work and get the results. Take action no pain, to get no satisfaction. Gain. There you go. We're, we're trotting them all out now here. <laughs> <laughs> and you treat this as a hotel. <laughs> It's the way to do it. It's it's just how you have to be sometimes. Um, James, we, we sort of touched on earlier the, the, the kind of lockdown challenges and, and how that's limiting what you can film, what you can go out and do. You know, the Grand Tour, I believe, was going to have extremely big uh, adventures, uh, you know, that you'd be filming right now. You obviously can't. Are you reviewing that? Are you thinking about, you know, staying local or, or adjusting it or just hanging fire until the world's back open for business again, as it were? Well, we're, we're open to anything, and we have discussed lots of things, but the, the general view is that we should, we should hang on until we can do things properly. There's no, there's no point doing a half-assed special, because that would just annoy and disappoint people. We do have one in the bag that we filmed, you know, the Madagascar one, which everybody's waiting for, yes, and that will, uh, I mean, Amazon won't say yet, but it's going to be, let's say, this year. Um, and they're, they're waiting. They're waiting for the right moment, I think, to release that. So that one is coming. Um, the next one we film, we don't know where it's going to be because it depends on what happens in the world. But we do. We do believe um, we'd be better off waiting and doing it properly. Yeah. But yeah, we're not okay. ruling out. You no, know, we've, we've. I've suggested. Yeah, you know, I suggested doing a special in in London, <laughs> but that wasn't very popular. <laughs> but likewise with my travel show, that, that's an even bigger problem in a way because. You know, at least on the Grand Tour and some of the things we've done, we can exist in a bubble, yes. us and our crew and our producers and researchers. But when I make the travel show, if we went to say, let's say I went somewhere very busy like India um, or Pakistan, somewhere, like, you know, somewhere really crowded, and yeah, it would be fantastic. But you couldn't do that without meeting and rubbing shoulders with lots of people. And if you didn't do that, you wouldn't be doing the subject justice. No. So. That's it. I mean, I, I've suggested our man in Hammersmith and, and so on, but they're not very interested. We've just got to wait until we can go somewhere and do it properly. If, if, we, if we went to a country and had to apply social distancing and wear masks, you know, that, would, that would compromise the editorial and the spontaneity massively. And also, if it was a country that still had problems and, you know, and it still has quarantine rules and it has local lockdown, a lot of the things we would want to do wouldn't be open. No. I mean, imagine if you were coming to Britain to make a travel show. There's a lot of restaurants and things you couldn't go to. A lot of events aren't on. A lot of public buildings aren't properly open. You just couldn't do it properly. Well, so, it also wouldn't reflect what what the location be real. really is. Yeah. No. So I, I think we do just have to wait. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. I, I've no, obviously, I've no idea how long that's going to be because nobody knows. No, well, there's a there's a crystal ball, but uh, it seems to be a bit uh, misty at the moment. However, bit cloudy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> However, what you 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 are able to do, and I thought this was incredible to to hear that you were doing this is is a cooking show. Yes, well, we've already done it. Um, it's we, we did it before lockdown started. Although we only just got in by the skin of our teeth, to be honest. What whilst we were filming it, we realised that something was coming up uh, and then it was probably going to compromise making TV we we sponsored it or we funded it to be like ourselves we've often talked and joked about me making a cooking show because it's not something I'm particularly good at or that I've really paid that much attention to but we did we did arrive at this little philosophy if you like which is that if you can make like a lot of people can five or six things pretty well because you've done them hundreds of times and you've practiced and refined them 
you ought to be able to do pretty much anything, or at least anything mainstream. So you can you can apply the same techniques and 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 um, tools and kit to lots and lots and lots of different different dishes. I hate the word dishes, but I couldn't think of another one then. Um, so that's exactly what we did. Now the, the the cooking show is not about you know going out and finding organically raised broad beans or any of that stuff. It's about making decent yeah, sort of posh pub grubs stroke student food from ingredients that you get from your local supermarket. So it's pies, it's it's some Asian fusion stuff, a curry, uh, some sticky puddings, custard, some stuff made out of things in tins that are in the store cup. It's, it's not aimed at professional chefs or accomplished home cooks or anybody like that. It's it's for people who've never really given it a crack. It's for me, basically. People like it, me. I, I didn't want to say that because I wasn't sure what, what your cooking was like. But if you are like me, then yes, it's for you, I'm afraid. Well, great. My wonderful and we sold thank it. you. In, we, it's going to go on Amazon. Again, I'm amazed. I'm going to, when, it, when it goes on, I'm going to turn it on and think, they, they, they've actually put this on television. <laughs> will you watch Here, this one back? I will. I, well, I will have to watch it back to because I won't believe it. <laughs> it is just me in a kitchen with a with the home economist to help me. The home economist is the person who does the real cooking on most cooking shows, whilst the presenter pretends to be doing it and just you know, shows you a few bits of chopping and a few bits of mixing, and then somebody in a back room in another kitchen is actually making the film the, the food that is filmed. Which we have. So this is a home economist. We have one. Mine's called Mickey, but she's actually simply part of the process. So we're completely honest about it. I start cooking, and then I go and get Mickey out of the cupboard and bring her on and say, "Am I doing this right?" She's, yes, but I'll just go and make a bit more in the back. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just make or, sure there's a, a better looking version ready for you. Yeah, well, the, the stuff well, because because of the way it's, it's it's quite complicated doing food because obviously it's, it, it happens. You can't you can't. You can't wind it backwards like you can if you're filming a car going around a racetrack. You can you can do another yeah, lap, but if yeah. you the par, you can't you can't uncook it. You know you can't go back five minutes to refilm it. So we we made everything for the TV show. There's also a book that goes with it. In order to do the photography for the book, which had to be done you know with proper lighting in a studio, they had to make everything again. We've been perfectly honest about this. But you can you can see if you watch the show and you look at the book at the same time, you can see that the same the same lamb curry, the same Asian stir-fry in the book, is the same. It's got the same ingredients in it. It's been done in exactly the same way, but it just looks a lot better. And that's because Nikki did it, not me. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. I mean, it's great that you can be that upfront about it as well, though, James. I mean, that's the, that's the magic of it, isn't it? You, you kind of earned your place to be able to say, no, this is, the, this is the reality of what we're doing here. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, part of that demolishing the... the, the the conceit of television, you know, it, it, it's slightly arrogant in a way. T- TV used to be trickery and everybody everybody went along with it and was amazed. But now everybody knows how TV is made because everybody makes TV on their telephone. So it, it would be arrogant if we assumed that the viewer didn't realize what was actually going on. So we're completely upfront about it. We're effectively coming on with our hands in there and say, look, we're cheating, but we're being honest about this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, James, you, you've been the most brilliant guest. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And thank you being, for being so generous with your time. I, I really do appreciate it's it. It's a pleasure. It's very nice to talk to you. It's, it's been really, really great. I, I'm mindful that we haven't really said anything about cars, which is ridiculous of me. I, I guess I should just ask you, what's the best car you've ever driven? You know, horrible uh, question. Yeah, it is the worst question in the world. I yeah. still don't know. People ask me this all the time. And I, I, I changed my mind. 
it, it ought to be one of the cars I own. I have actually sold a few of my cars, but I still have my 458 Ferrari, the Speciali. <laughs> and I suppose in many ways, that's the greatest car I've ever driven because I, I was so blown away by it that I went and bought one. But of yeah. course, there have been two more interesting V8 mid-engine Ferraris since then. So maybe it isn't anymore. I don't know. Maybe it's my beach buggy. Maybe it was the first car I ever drove, which was my mum's Vauxhall. Maybe it was the first car I ever owned, which was my slightly tatty, another Vauxhall, a Mark One Cavalier, because that first time you set off alone in your own car is like, it's sort of like going into outer space in yeah. a way, because everything is yours and there for the taking. Yeah. It isn't really, because you run out of money to buy petrol about 20 <laughs> miles later, but... <laughs> Yeah, but it does. It's the feel of freedom, isn't it? Oh, it's fantastic. Just looking to your left and thinking, there's no one else here. And weirdly, I mean, many years later, about uh, 15 years ago, I learned to fly aircraft. So, you know, I can fly a light aircraft. And there comes a time when the instructor, you know, gets out and says, right, you're on your own. Go up and do a circuit and land by yourself. And that is a, that's a remarkable moment and sort of slightly nerve wracking is you, you take off and you're in the sky in an aeroplane by yourself yeah. and you have to put it back on the ground without piling it up or killing yourself or anybody else, which I did, obviously. Did you wish the nun was next to you? <laughs> yes, I wish the nun was next, was next to me quite. But that was amazing, but it still wasn't quite as amazing as the first time I went out in a car on my own because that was such a massive leap. I'd had to go everywhere before that on a bus or on a bicycle. And, and it was it was like attaining instant maturity and respectability. I could drive a car. I was actually allowed to drive a car. And going back to what we were saying earlier, I was 17, just coming up to 18. So everything was thrilling. You know, just opening the door of a car was thrilling. It was just all, it was, it was like a drug. It was fantastic. And I don't think anything is going to be ever quite as exciting as that. Even if I'm allowed to fly a space shuttle one day or be the president of the United States, I don't know, it won't be as exciting as driving a Mark 1 Vauxhall Cavalier on my own for the first time. That's amazing. That's amazing. Would you? What's your take on Elon Musk's everyone going up to Mars? Would you, would you be on the ship? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, I don't think I'd be allowed to. I'm probably too old and not healthy enough these days, but... I think it's a great idea. I mean, we will have to go there eventually because we can. And then, you know, you'd have to say, well, why not? To explore is an imperative, as I think Michael Collins from Apollo 11 said. Um, so I think they should do it, but I don't think I should be on it. Right. I definitely don't think the three of us from Grand Tour should be on it. That would be an utter disaster. <laughs> you can't think of three people you'd less like to send to Mars to undertake that mission and to be the ambassadors for humanity when they got there. Definitely not. But it's quite a quite a way to continue the series, James. The grand tour to Mars. Well, that would definitely keep the viewers waiting, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, there's no lockdown restrictions there. You'll be fine. Yeah, the social distancing requirements will be met if we're on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, well, it's a possibility, but let's let's not go there, um, James. My absolute last question, because I'm mindful of how much time we've taken of your day, and I, and I really do appreciate it. It's an awful question, so I do apologise for asking this question, but nonetheless, the show is called Driven, and unlike your um, show from 1999, you know, it, it's not it's not a car show. It's about what drives people. So, so what is it that drives you? Uh, oh, 
Now, funny that I should be appearing on a radio show called Driven and that I once appeared on a TV show called Driven because I'm not sure I am very driven. What what actually drives me? I think I think sort of self-satisfaction. The reason I used to like writing those columns and things was not because I liked the process. As I said earlier on, I, I find it very painful and I still do. But I think it was it was the thought that I'd done it and that I was happy with it. When I'd done one, when I'd written one of those columns, and sometimes yeah. I used to spend two days doing them, I'd, I'd, I'd almost have like a sort of mini party to celebrate, even though I had to do another one probably three or four days later. So I'd go and, you know, go to the pub and maybe have a big curry or a takeaway Chinese. I just felt so pleased with myself. And I think, I think it's, yes, I'm driven by minor hurdles and achievements. That's good enough for me. And, Not and, massive ambitions. <laughs> I don't really have any massive ambitions, I'm afraid. Well, you know, considering you, you, you are driven by minor hurdles and achievements, what you have achieved is phenomenal. Well done. Well, thank you. <laughs> James, you, you've been a really, really interesting guest. Thank you for being so, well, open and, and, and really a gripping guest. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. No, it's been a great pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Thank you, James. Um, I hope we catch up again sometime soon. Yes, hope so too. Brilliant. See you on the road, as they say. <laughs> That's the best way to sign off I can think of. Great stuff, James May. Thank you very much indeed. Have a wonderful uh, have a wonderful month, I guess. Let's let's say that. Yes, and you, sir. Brilliant. Take care, James. Thank you. Bye bye. Driven with Andy J. James May, what a star. I absolutely loved, loved that conversation. I really enjoyed it. An intelligent, insightful, open, honest, charming man. Really enjoyed that chat. Now, I've got my uh, little book of celebrity conversations. I'm just having a little look at the sort of people that we've been speaking to over the last few months. And I'd love you to check out, well, we've got so many chats that you can enjoy. People like Nico Rosberg, Ricky Wilson, Phyllis Logan, Brian McFadden, Marcus Bridgestock, Kelvin Fletcher, Gabby Logan, Nigel Havers, Ben Aldridge, Harry Judd from McFly, Beverly Knight, Emily Atak, Katie Mellower, Michael Smiley, Catherine Jenkins, Ryan Tricks, Melanie Sykes, Jeremy Vine. Goodness me, this I mean, this is just the first of seven books that I've got full of celebrities. Let's dive into the next one and see who else we've got in here that people like Timmy Mallet and Ben Hardy. Oh yeah, Ben. It's a brilliant actor. Darren Brown, Rick Edwards. Oh, no, Rick, we couldn't air. Actually, I recorded with Rick, but we weren't allowed to put it out because there was some controversy around that. I'll speak to Rick another time. Anyway, my point is loads and loads of conversations, loads and loads of people for you to listen to. Thank you for choosing the Andy J podcast. Like, subscribe and all that jazz. And I mean, I'm sure you can agree with me. James May, what a star. Love that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.